0: Hello and welcome to Vista Talks, interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. I'm your host for today, Simon Hodgkins, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ulrich Heenas. Ulrich is one of the most recognized names when it comes to the world of international business and localization. Uh, He's always been fascinated by language, uh, cultural differences, and global business. And back in 1996, Ulrich founded the Localization Institute, Which is a leader in localization education to this day. The Institute also organizes the leading event in the localization industry, which is Lockworld. Many people listening will be very familiar with Lockworld. It's where people network, people get together, and they they ultimately learn from each other. And last but not least, Ulrich, of course, has won a number of awards throughout his illustrious career. and also picked up a Think Global Award as Language Industry Person of the Year. So it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have Ulrich with us today. So thank you for joining us, Ulrich.
1: Hey, Thanks, Simon. Good to be here.
0: Let's move on. Let me get onto the show. I've got a lot I want to ask you. So you, as I mentioned, you're well known in the localization industry, of course. And I understand that you spent the first decade of your career, though, organizing international campaigns. And they were sort of the arms race, apartheid, and promoting global social justice. So my first question to you, if I can, is how did all that come about? And then what prompted the move and the the sort of uh, transition into the localization world that we know and love today?
1: Well, how many hours do we have, Simon? No, thank you for asking. Um, Being at the point of my life, you know, that I'm right now uh, having turned 70 earlier this year, gives me, uh, I just naturally, you know, go over my life. And uh, I'm really glad that I started out the way I did. So um, I've always been, my first love always has been business. I've been to a business high school in Southern Germany. I did a management program with a local manufacturing company that already back in the early 70s had manufacturing facilities in 15 European countries, and I was deeply I mean I learned a lot there. Then I had to do my military service but I opted to do an alternative service I became what's known as a conscientious objector I did not want to serve in the German military, and as luck had it that took me to the United States. Where I ended up working for about a year and a half with a social justice movement uh, that is known under the, uh, by its leader, Cesar Chavez. He was a leader of migrant farm workers, the, you know, a lot of them, what is now Mexican farm workers who are not covered by a lot of the labor laws. And uh, the way they got um, my role was that of a, boycott organizers, so I was based in Philadelphia organizing a consumer boycott that ultimately was aimed to improve the working uh, conditions of migrant farm workers. By the time I was done with that service and heading back to Germany, uh, the choice was do I go back into business where I had come from? or do I want to stick with the social justice, international peace work? I opted, I felt at the time, my my skills, I hope I wasn't too um, so impressed with myself, but the, my good organizational skills, my understanding of running a business, I wanted to put at the service of the, what, you know the peace movement, so to speak, and so I ended up working uh, for the next eight years full time for an international peace organization that organizes campaigns based on nonviolence in the Gandhian Martin Luther King uh, spirit. And um, preparing for this talk, I just remembered we already localized. Like then, I did a campaign against apartheid. And uh, apartheid was under a lot of pressure at that point, And a lot of people were imprisoned either for violating apartheid laws or for protesting. And so I organized a campaign to draw attention to all the people imprisoned in apartheid. And we printed up little uh, old fashioned key tag labels on, on paper um, and on it had a Bible quote on one side in English. Uh, A quote from, I forget, somewhere in the Bible saying, you know, could this key unlock a prison door and be put in English on one side, and then we found the Afrikaans equivalent of that Bible quote and printed that on the other side and the campaign encouraged people to take any old key tied to that label and send it to a nearby South African embassy or consulate so. um, Localization back even Beacon in the days before I even knew that was a thing. So,
0: great. Well, I was going to ask you like how it sort of that, that sort of transition begun, but even back then uh, it was very much uh, prevalent. So, can I can I take can you take us back to the initial concept then, just to move the story on to the next uh, stage, which I know everybody sort of knows you for, but the initial concept for the Localization Institute. And of course, Localization World, uh, this, this large industry leading event uh, with, of course, Donna Parrish and uh, you know a host of people along the way. What, what were the changes and the developments that you've seen over the years? And what was that initial concept, the spark, where those two sort of entities uh, came into being? And the reason I'm asking you Ulrich, is because a lot of people are familiar with it today but over the course, since their inception, many people have joined the localization industry. It's a bigger industry today than it was back then when it all started. So it'd be very nice to hear those sort of initial concept stages and also um, the developments that you've seen from your perspective over the years.
1: Wow, that's a lot of things you're asking here, Simon. Um, let me, help me stay on track. Um, well, real briefly, the Localization Institute came out of my experience as an international sales and marketing manager. So when I left the social change peace movement work, I moved to the U.S., got a job with a local software company, sold their software globally, and uh, you know got to a point where we needed to localize. And since I was German, uh, since I am German, uh, <clears throat> it made sense that I would also manage the German localization of our leading product that got me you know gave me firsthand knowledge about localization and after I left that company I had you know learned that their localization was becoming more and more important for global success for software companies, there was very little information up out about it out there and then led me to found the localization institute in 96 i launched small events um a round table in 97 early 97 for localization managers and um, more seminars more roundtables, more seminars um and then at that time there was already a global uh localization event called LISA, the Localization Industry Standards Association. But a lot of the people who came to my, my small events said, or told me that they really disliked going to these LISA events. They were not to their liking and they really liked what I was doing and couldn't I please consider doing a very large event where everyone would get together, they could do their business, people from Microsoft and from back then Sun Microsystems uh, and so on. So um, I realized that was too much for me, my small institute. I went to Donna Parrish, who was the editor owner of Multilingual Computing Magazine, and we launched Lockworld in 2003. It was right out of the gate a much bigger success than we thought, and people right away said, uh, "You know, you got to do this in Europe," and uh, and then eventually, "Oh, why did you ever do anything in Asia?" And so, you know, looking back almost 20 years, we've done 45 Lockworlds uh, all over Asia, all over Europe. Um, all over North America, and it's been a much bigger success than we anticipated. Uh, Now you asked about change, uh, change in changing of the industry,
0: going on from how, how these two sort of entities came about, which is fascinating. Um, It's really about your viewpoint, you know, you've had a, a real um, sort of macro overview, if I can use that term, of mm-hmm. the localization industry. Because on one hand, you've got the educational side of things through the institute. Right. On the other hand, you've created this um, global event, as you say, in different parts of the world. Everybody seems to love it. Everybody goes to it. I know we, you know, Vistatech have attended. We, It's almost like a community event where we meet up with mm-hmm. old friends and colleagues and industry, you know, whether they're competitors uh, they're still friends, and everybody's sort of together in this localization industry. And, of course, there's customers and prospects and business partners there. So it, it really has become this sort of phenomenon in the events world for the localization space. But my my question is, is back to, from your perspective, from where you've been looking over this landscape since back in, what, 96, 97, really, from those early those early small events and those people sort of being, almost encouraging you, I think, to say, why don't you do this bigger? And then can you do it in Europe? And all those questions came about. How have you seen the landscape ebb and flow? How has it changed? What, what have you seen during your tenure?
1: Well, thanks, Simon. Um, I mean, what, I, what I've what i seen, I really like. You know, the early days were, you know, really comparing learning by trial and error, you know, these early roundtables for people from, you know, these companies who were just learning how to do this and better, faster, cheaper, uh, on a bigger scale, uh, you know, more languages, um, getting into Asian languages. Those were really tough, tough, tough challenges. I love, you know, there were hardly any tools out there. You know, Trados was, you know, one of the very early tools. And now when I look around, it's just, it's amazing. You know, what has come about, uh, specialization, the tools, machine translation, uh, translation management systems. Uh, and um, and I think the, for many companies now, um, for many companies now, it's a foregone conclusion that in order to succeed, they need to be global. Right? That used to be a big argument in the early days. You know, if going global was kind of like, well, what are the pros and cons of that? You know, okay, let's look at list before we jump onto that bandwagon and let's really, you know, we really need to look thoroughly at this if this makes sense. You know, no, we're way beyond that. Going global is uh, a must. And uh, for almost any company, the potential of the global market far exceeds, you know, whatever domestic market they're starting out in. So I'm really glad that localization, both on the product side and increasingly on the marketing side, you know, where you've been really active, is becoming uh, just as an accepted Thing and we, it makes sense to get educated in it. It goes, it makes sense to read about it, to go to meetings, go to conferences, to get better at it.
0: Sure, absolutely. Thank you, uh, Ulrich. So, the, the event, thank you for, the, per, um, thank you for the, um, the views there on your perception of, of how it's changed. I wanted to ask you just uh, another couple of quick things about localization world, if I can. Yeah. And one of them, one of them is about it's every, it's on everybody's calendar, okay? It's an event that everybody knows is coming up. I suppose during the pandemic, a lot of it has been uh, virtual, which has kind of maybe enabled some people to visit other localization worlds that maybe wouldn't have been on their physical sort of travel calendar. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is which is you know it, it's there's good and bad in that. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what, if you could pinpoint or when you think about the success of localization world, what what would you say is the reason for its long term success, because it seems to grow from strength to strength.
1: Thank you, Simon. I mean, you know, I've seen some um, fluctuations, I wouldn't, you know, probably like any other business, it doesn't, mm. uh, it's not a straight arrow up but yes you know overall from its early beginnings it's grown you know from one event with 300 people or 280 people in seattle to an event that takes place three times a year you know before covid with attendance of six, 700 people yeah. in europe and north america and about 300 in asia mm. i'd like to think what its key factors for its success are is uh, we're very professional in organizing events. The quali- the event, the user experience, you know, and this starts with the hotel, the city, the food, the social events is always very good. We do not do this cheap. Uh, the other thing is, I think Donna and I are not ego driven. I have a wonderful partner in Donna Parrish. We are not ego driven. So Lockroll is not about Ulrich and Donna. It's about bringing people together and letting them do their business. And our job is to create the best possible environment for that to make happen. That is what we are, what it's about. I don't have a favorite machine translation uh, system, I don't have a preferred tool that I'm trying to convince you to follow my lead. Uh, It's all about me creating, you know, not unlike maybe uh, someone who runs a restaurant, you know, it's not about me, it's about letting people get together and eating a meal together and leaving having had a good experience and um, the other point, uh, it's a, even though it's a business, right, this has been a business from the beginning. We do it in a very community minded and you, you mentioned that earlier, you know you use the term, it is kind of a uh, community and we are very open someone once said, you know the thing I like about lock world you don't have to be somebody to be somebody, you know, I can come at wherever I am and i'm welcome and. Just to use one example, for 10 years, Teresa Marshall, who is the VP of Globalization at Salesforce, one of the biggest software companies globally, has been running an unconference as part of Lock World. So anyone who comes to Lock World can sit down, you know, face to face in Berlin next year, or virtually, and be in a room with Teresa Marshall, and. Basically, talk about localization, right? And I think that spirit that it is not elitist, you know, we are not catering to any elite. We bring people together who, wherever they are. And uh, one more thing, um, if you have the time, we've also, it's been always important both for the Institute and the Lock World to draw really uh, a firm line between the commercial aspect of the event and the content. So we are like a little bit like an old fashioned, like a newspaper. You have articles, you know, and they're written by journalists or maybe opinion pieces, but they are not affected by the advertiser. So if there's a story about the new Ford SUV or or the new VW SUV on the front page uh, test, that has not been influenced by the fact that there is an ad by Volkswagen on the back page, right? They did not get this favorable article in the front page by buying an ad. The program is made simply by an independent advisory board under our leadership. And then there is exhibits, there are sponsors, but they do not buy content. And I think that is still a very I mean, it has meant that we have turned a bit good money. I mean, I remember three, four years ago, someone was willing to take our platinum sponsorship for about $30,000. But if only if the CEO could give the keynote speech at Lockworld, that was the condition. And we simply said, no, that's not for sale. We pick a keynote speaker based on the content we want to present, not on the money you pay us. So thanks for asking.
0: No, thank you, Ulrich. There are three great insights into the the success and the continued success of Lockworld. So thank you. Uh, I suppose my last question, because I said I had two two quick questions I just wanted to to add in. And the last one is around uh, the the upcoming event next year, which is Lockworld Africa. Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. not sure if it's the first time it's been organized on the continent. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. If it is, um, and also, what what was the thinking there, and what are you what are your <clears> viewpoints on on moving then Lock World uh, event to Africa, albeit in a virtual environment? I think this time around,
1: it is. Yeah. Well, um, it takes me back to you to your fair city of Dublin, where when the last time we did. We were with Lockworld at the Dublin Convention Center, beautiful facility. Yeah. Uh, someone came up and said from, I think, Microsoft at the time, and I do not remember her name, uh, and said, Ulrich, you really ought to do something, you know, in Africa, this is really, you know, a lot of companies are paying attention to that. And we started developing work back then. Um, And we were actually at the point we did surveys, what should we cover, where should we hold it, and the holding where to hold it is a huge challenge in Africa. Travel is not cheap. And so by going to Nairobi, you eliminate a lot of people, um, you know, who would not be able to fly from Mozambique to Nairobi, or even from Lagos, or from uh, Addis Ababa, and so on. So and then I got ill. I, I got this really rare illness that took me out for a year. And with it, you know, the whole Africa project was shelved. But now, you know, in a way, uh, the upcoming Lock World Africa, which will take place in early March next year, is was is possible through this gift of COVID. <laughs> Joke. Uh, um, where we uh, it gave us permission. First of all, we got to rehearse doing good virtual events, and we decided to do Lock World Africa as a virtual event. It would allow people to join in from Cape Town, from uh, from Cape Town or from Casablanca, from Abu Dhabi, from uh, all these cities. And um, I'm currently working on. Um, Putting the program together this afternoon i have an one hour meeting about and we're really really excited we're early days uh but he, it's um you know it brings me back to my work from in my first decade of professional life where what we have learned about localization about marketing about languages curating languages technology and we can uh bring that and learn about Africa. So we want to make this a very integrated event with many people from Africa talking about what it means to do projects. Uh, I had a fascinating conversation yesterday with an agency in, in Johannesburg who will hopefully do a case study about a Colgate product that they recently launched in African countries. Um, and in many African languages, including jingles. I mean, they're talking about localizing jingles, not just having one jingle for all countries, but having different musical elements to respond. Um, So to me, uh, to bring basically what we have developed all over the globe, including, you know, we did one event in Buenos Aires uh, to Africa and maybe, jumpstart, bring, and and for us on the outside of Africa, learn about the diversity and the opportunities of Africa, but also bring the tools that we have built and make them available to people in education of languages in Africa, but people who develop businesses, language businesses, it's just very, very exciting, so.
0: It, It is exciting, Ulrich, and just anecdotally, the people that i'm talking to throughout the industry and anytime localization lock world comes up um, everybody in my sphere is talking about lock world africa because it's something between it's new and also fascinated to see how this thing goes so we're really looking forward to it so it's great to to hear some of the background i didn't realize some of the thinking went right back to that event in Dublin. That's interesting. I
1: I still remember sitting on the upper floor of the convention center on a bench, having come out of yeah. the big the, the big thing, overlooking toward the Wicklow Mountains, right. and uh, talking about Lock World Africa. Why we really should be doing a Lock World Africa.
0: Fascinating. So that's that's uh, great to hear. And uh, continued success. We're we're very much looking forward to uh, Lockwood Africa. So just move, before we finish off on the events, because there are a few other things I want to ask you, but I I can't miss out Brand to Global. Um, and I know you mentioned Donna and her her involvement and multilingual magazine. You sort of referenced, and I know that's gone through a change uh, fairly recently. And uh, the, the the new team there, NIMSI and, and the and the, the team behind right. Multilingual Magazine, that's gone on to a new sort of iteration now. New but home. I wanted to, I, I wanted, sorry, go ahead, Ulrich, what did you
1: say? I said just a new home. I a, new home. a new home, yes,
0: home. yes. Um, I wanted to ask you about brand-to-global events, uh, because that's something that kind of happened almost sort of during the downtime of Lockworld. But within its own, we've attended a number of them and within its own right that's a really interesting event so maybe just for our audience could you just share a little bit about brand to global for me
1: absolutely so again takes me back to my early early years you know i come from international sales and marketing and localizing a product is not a, an end by itself It's a beginning. Once you have the product localized, now you need to figure out how are you going to sell that in the target market? Where are you going to advertise? You know, and and all of those kind of the, 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 just the marketing, right? Which trade shares are you going to take it to? So I had been trying to get the global sales, the marketing, the global branding and marketing piece into Lockworld. But, you know, when you look at companies, the localization is typically in one silo and the global, the marketing is in another silo. And these people do not talk a lot to each other, uh, don't sometimes not even know about each other. And so getting the marketing people to come to Lockworld Was a did not work, and so in 2012 I decided to create an event just that you know by its very name would signal, this is about global marketing and the event is called brand to global. We ran it three times in London twice in menlo park we uh, were going to do it again in Berlin last year. Uh, but then COVID got in the way, and we held it virtually. We've put it on hold just now because we're so busy with, uh, you know, having to change uh, to virtual Lock World and doing these um, seminars. But I've continued to find. Uh, I hope we will, you know, as things get more normal, do we dare to hope next year we can go back and offer more brand to global? Topics because I think you know that a big surprise, Simon, to me was that you know, having done localization stuff for 20 years and having it seen become accepted, how in a way much farther behind global sales and marketing is. And I give you one example one of the early brand to globals, I ended up talking to someone at Odie in Germany um, to talk about whether he could come and give a presentation at ODI. He explained to me, this is might have been, let's say 2013, 14, that ODI had until recently not had anyone in global marketing. He had just moved from the French marketing group, to headquarters in Germany to start coordinating global marketing. Until then, there was a German marketing, and then they would hand things over to the US, to Australia, wherever they market ODS. But there was no concerted effort at ODI. And to me, thinking that a globally successful brand like ODI did not even make an effort to coordinate these global activities, uh, it's just kind of like what. But it was reflected in my experience organizing Brand to Global that uh, we're still much more in early days of global branding and marketing than um, I I thought.
0: That's fascinating, Ulrich, and I, it kind of helps me with my next question that I that I want to put to you, and that's because. We talked a little bit about your view of the landscape and the journey and you're just sharing there the example of how, even in today's world, some of this stuff, it's just not connected up. So my, my question really is around when you think of all the, the localization developments that we've had, and then you think about a general vision about where you see this going, you know, do you have any sort of things that you can sort of pinpoint as major developments that are gonna be here with us in three, five, maybe 10 years time. If you look forward, as opposed to looking through the history of what we know, um, do you see it changing still at a rapid pace?
1: Yes. Now here I need to um, explain that I am not so much a visionary. So predicting what's going to happen it's not something that I just comes naturally to me. I will try, though, my best uh, and say that based on looking back 25 years, yeah, I see this area. I mean, I've gone through three crises. There was the first was the, the dot-com crash uh, back in around, what was it, 1999, 2000, somewhere in there. Yeah, about then 2000, big, I think, yeah. Then the big 2008 crash and now COVID, what I've noticed that even though there was a sudden, we got hit hard for a moment, the demand for what we are selling, what the localization industry is producing continues to grow unabatedly. And I think that will continue for, Several more decades would be my prediction. I think there will be more tools, there will be more, and the tools taking over what machines can do will free up human, will actually generate more business for humans for work that only humans can do. So, you know, in that marketing, social media, uh, sentiment analysis. Um, you know, more companies will offer products in more languages, um, so I think if, if a young person was asking me, saying, you know, this localization industry, you know, I have some interesting offers, but I'm wondering, is that going to be around for a while, I would, un, without hesitation, says yes, you know, maybe not forever, but for the next 20, 30 years, for sure.
0: Yeah, it, it is interesting when you think of all the tools and technology and AI and how it, you know, that, that shift in the human uh, aspects and humans may be looking at higher quality tasks. Um, it's quite an interesting development that we've seen in the last number of years, and it seems to be continuing at a pace. And you're right to, to point out, Ulrich, the, you know, the, um, the big crises that we've been through over the last uh, 20 odd plus years, um the 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 content side of things continues to grow the messaging continues to grow and the the world continues to be more and more connected doesn't it so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. it's a great point that you make
1: which you know simon is what uh takes me right back to those early years where for me to improve communication amongst people in German, we have a word for this, as you know, as you can guess, you know, it's full which is, you know, creating understanding between peoples, between people. Um, you know, that's what still is the red thread that runs through it for me. You know, it used to be about, directly about, you know, apartheid, ending a really bad situation, right? But underlying what I like doing is now is increasing the knowledge. I mean, I think the fact that Netflix, to use a concrete example, is now making shows all over the world, but then bringing shows from Germany, from France, from uh, Korea, And dubbing them, and suddenly Americans are watching Korean shows or German shows. And, you know, the world has been watching American shows for many decades, right? But now we're bringing in these different cultures. And I believe, and, you know, I have no proof, but it's getting harder and harder if you've been participating in other countries' lives by watching a sitcom out of Denmark or Turkey or Kazakhstan, it's just going to be much harder for someone to come along and paint that country as an evil nation, right? Because you've kind of, in a way, have met people from there, right? And so it's not going to be quite as easy, you know, for a Hitler or someone to just really, you know, yeah, uh, hijack the fear of foreigners, which is a, you know, a, a natural fear we have of the unknown, right? And, and put it to evil use. Yeah, so I, now I, now I'll get off my uh, <laughs> off my uh, off my uh, what is that my what a preacher gets onto no soap, no but box. I uh, <laughs> my soapbox no but it, it's important to me that you know what I do today even though I worked with you know with, with uh, you know big brands I mean just yesterday we got registrations from five people from a major global company for one of our new uh new events so i i take pride that i'm helping these big brands you know to master cultural differences linguistic differences i feel it contributes to that global understanding we all do I think all, no, all I, of all I of us be. you you at Vista, you know, Vista, Vista Tech have been doing that uh, for years as well. So and, and yeah, we, we actually
0: celebrate uh, we celebrate 25 years next year. So it's been an incredible journey for the a lot of the team at Vista Tech too. But um, to your point, I think we we almost are becoming more and more vested in each other's culture. Uh, which mm-hmm. isn't a bad thing because it leads to better understanding and a, and a better yeah. world. Hopefully, you know, if we look at yeah. it optimistically. Um, and I think your point about Netflix, it is, it is incredible to think that, you know, say for example, a non-English produced film or series, I should say, becomes a global phenomenon uh, and everybody's watching it in a different language with or without subtitles, with or without dubbing, depending on their preference. Um, and it, it is an incredible phenomenon to see. And I'm sure that, you know, there are many companies doing that now. But the, the streaming world and the content world, the video world, it's certainly giving people a rich, a rich uh, table of culture to uh, look in and out of. Yeah. So thank right. you. all. Yeah. Um, and I suppose my final question then on this sort of uh, topic that we're on here is. We've talked about your sort of the way you see it going, and the advice you'd give to maybe somebody looking at getting into the localization industry. But what do you think, as a collective industry, are there any steps that you feel we should be taking collectively?
1: Yes, um, I couldn't have uh, set you up better to ask that question because one of my recent, my new endeavors of this year is working together with. Uh, three other people um, having launched this lock World initiative called Edu in Lock, And I think what we as an industry to keep on staying on track, we need to improve education and localization. There are still too many people who see going to language school just as, this is if you want to become a translator or an interpreter. And the schools need to change, The it needs to even go further. Right now, we need, we as an industry we need to communicate to people who are currently in, let's say, what would be in America, a high school in Germany, a gymnasium, you know, um, that uh, learning languages. Uh, will open you up to amazingly interesting jobs in the localization industry. And it's not mean you're going to sit up in front of a computer with a book, and you're going to be typing a translation all day long. That's, you know, appealing to introvert people. We need to um, appeal to people who are end up project managers or techno reviewers and all of that. And I think that's going to be I'm really excited about having launched Unlock. We're doing really, like right now, we're putting the final touches on a program that will connect industry leaders with schools. So if a particular, let's say if Limerick, the University of Limerick would like to get someone from the industry to talk about localization at Salesforce. There's actually a directory where they can contact someone who has already agreed to do that. And then someone from Salesforce or from SAP or from Facebook will actually come and give a guest lecture about what is localization like at Facebook. And I'm really excited about doing this. And I think, I hope, uh, the whole industry will join in in promoting this effort of edu in lock will be we eventually plan to make that its own entity under its own direction but we're kind of currently, you know, launching that ship, and once it can set sail on its own, we'll be happy to uh, get off board so.
0: No I think it's a it's a, an excellent initiative Ulrich and. Uh, I know from from our own perspective, we have been for many years pre pandemic. We haven't been doing it during the pandemic. Um, we have been taking in students from various universities mm. and language schools on a regular basis. They tour the headquarters, they get a presentation, and we sort of help them understand a little bit about international right. business. But I, but I think you know, as a, a, a as a, an LSP or a global content solution provider that's one thing but i think where you've got these sort of leaders in industry within these global brands being able to have them in this resource this rich directory where various universities around the world can pull these people in to help build the education process i think that's a terrific initiative so continued success with that um and i I wanted to maybe, as we come towards the end of our time here, there's just a couple more things. Yeah. i'm going I'm going to squeeze in if I can, Ulrich and absolutely. What, what one of them is about we've talked a little bit. We've touched on the pandemic, and you know, of course, why wouldn't we? Everybody's talking about it still. And um, it's certainly accelerated business, hasn't it, in lots of lots of cases. Some industries and some you know some some people of course, have suffered terribly. Uh, But it has also been a boost to lots of industries. Um, And the content we touched on earlier has continued to grow throughout for lots of areas. Um, Some businesses have done really, really well. Um, You you only have to look at the tech sector, for example, to see how fast that's grown over the last couple of years. Um, But it, it seems to me, and this is the question I want to put to you, that the localization industry, particularly throughout the pandemic, and as we come hopefully out of the pandemic onto uh, you know the years ahead, it the localization localization industry has probably never been as important as it is right now. Would you Would you agree with that statement, or would you have any views on that perspective?
1: No, I, I you know I, I hadn't thought about that, but I yeah no I I agree with you. I think it is more important than ever has been, and I think. We need to continue fight for the recognition of that within companies, uh, but yes, uh, I, I, mean, it's, I marvel at what has been created and I think it's, it's important for, for the world to continue to grow.
0: Thank you very much, Ulrich. So look, before we wrap up today, I do want to ask you, is there anything else that you would like to touch on or share with our audience today that maybe I haven't asked you or or that you want to maybe share before we wrap up today?
1: Well, let me just say that uh, thank you for inviting me, um, inviting me to be part of this uh, podcast. I want to say it's been such a pleasure to become part of the local. I mean, I was, you know, when I created the Localization Institute, I basically stepped full-time into localization away from international sales and marketing. And it's been just such a pleasure to be part of this global community. I just, uh, looking back now, you know, all the people I've met, uh, it's somehow lock the localization industry attracts fascinating people my kind of people the people who love other cultures who are delighted to meet someone from another country who speaks and who grew up differently it's been amazing and I look forward to continuing for a while um, to meet and but that has been one of the uh, just the, uh, the the big pleasures of being an organizer of events and being at and doing all of that the people who are in our industry just wonderful and I'm going to you know say thank you to all of you who have come to my events or coming to our events for giving us the chance to organize them and I hope you will you have gotten what you came for and I hope you will continue uh, finding what you are what you're looking for thank you
0: Well, all, all, all I can say is thank you to to you for all the uh, events that you've put on the great Uh, sort of 25 plus years that that this uh, continues to grow and educate people around the world. It sounds like you've new initiatives which sound really exciting and uh, of course we've all got Lockworld Africa to look forward to and more Lockworld events throughout the world which I know is already on our calendars. So we look forward to attending those and continued success to you and to Donna and to everybody associated with everything that you do. We truly appreciate it and thank you so much for taking the time out to spend some time with me today.
1: Well, thank you, Simon.
0: So that's the end of today's show with Ulrich Hines. Please make sure to tune in again to watch and listen to another episode of Visa Talks, where we'll be joined by interesting people from all around the world. Thank you, Ulrich.
1: Thank you, Simon.